Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Uh Hi, everyone. I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to episode number 35. This is the wrap-up episode to mark the end of season two and reflect on what we've learnt to date. Instead of interviewing a food entrepreneur or expert, today I'm going to be sharing some insights into how food entrepreneurs from small and medium-sized businesses are succeeding in an unprecedented way versus traditional big food companies. You see, historically, the average retail grocery shelf has been the playground dominated by big food. And by that, I mean multinational food and beverage companies with huge budgets and big departments of functional experts that can make, distribute and sell established food or beverage brands more successfully than smaller companies. However, over the last seven years, something interesting has been happening on our grocery shelves. The most innovative and high growth products are actually coming from food entrepreneurs in startup and scale up businesses. And this is leading some industry insiders to predict it's a precursor for the demise of mainstream brands altogether. An industry-wide review by Bain & Co. from 2012 to 2019 has found that new brands from what they call insurgent businesses are accounting for less than 3% of sales in the market, but driving more than 30% of the growth. This means that newer and smaller entrants into the food and beverage marketplace are actually driving category growth significantly faster than the large established or incumbent brands. So why and how are these smaller and newer food and beverage businesses succeeding? While many people will point to the lower barriers of entry for food and beverage startups today as the reason for this success, I disagree. Factors like the impact of social media, the increased access to co-manufacturing and the expansion of direct-to-consumer sales channels do help start up food entrepreneurs. However, I think of these as enablers for success, not drivers of success. They will get you into the game, but they don't guarantee you can win. Instead, I believe this game is being won because of shifting consumer choice. We, the consumer, are driving market changes using our purchasing dollars. And in my mind, that is the ultimate decider of business success, whether consumers will buy and keep buying your products. So there are three reasons why I believe consumers are increasingly turning to products from startup food entrepreneurs versus established brands. I've seen these three factors come up repeatedly in the food businesses I've spoken with throughout this season two podcast. So let's dive into those now. The first reason is product and brand authenticity. Food entrepreneurs are often driven by passion for and engagement with their products. They live, breathe, and often personify the very products and brands they create and sell. This transparency and authenticity in the founder's origins, 
their recipe development, their choice of ingredients, the branding and transparent production techniques are all a valuable commodity for today's discerning consumer. Bronte Hogarth, the founder of Raise the Bar, is a great example of this. By transforming used coffee grounds from local cafes into coffee scrub bars with zero-waste packaging, Bronte is elevating the social cause of upcycling waste and minimising ground fill. Her products and their social mission attract and reward her consumers with goodwill and a sense of meaningful purpose that supersedes the benefits offered by other soap brands. We seem to be in an age now where we want to support real people, real communities and real causes behind the products we buy. The perspective of what is worthwhile and valued has shifted for many people. It's less about lower price and quick convenience and more about quality products from worthwhile businesses. And our buying power is aligning more with our personal values about caring for ourselves, our families, our communities, our country, and the greater environment. We want to be able to say, this is why I bought it. Mitch Wells, the co-founder of Billy Van Creamy Ice Cream, also found this to be true. Mitch and his brother bootstrapped their way onto the local Melbourne food truck scene with their offer of natural, organic, and vegan ice cream, made from fresh and simple ingredients, just like you would use at home. Their return to authentic, transparent, and simple ingredients has been like a siren call to local foodies who want to support local businesses making delicious and high-quality real food. This shift to valuing product and brand authenticity shows that we've finally come to an age when the realness of the sausage is more important than the distracting sight and sound of the sizzle. The second reason why food entrepreneurs are succeeding is because of their consumer closeness. Now, food entrepreneurs have an advantage over big food companies. They're constantly within arm's reach of their consumers, whether it's via their online sales, farmer's market stalls, in-store tasting demos, or their direct sales to trade customers. These food founders are literally within reaching distance of their consumers and constantly getting real-time feedback about their products. They hear for themselves on a daily basis, firsthand and repeatedly, about what is working and what isn't. And because they're dealing with smaller product volumes and a customer base, they can rapidly adjust their flavours, ingredients, branding, packaging and product offers to better serve their consumers. This was certainly evident for Tom Griffith from the natural juice and snack food business Emma and Tom's. They switched to a self-distribution model with a fleet of branded vans, which not only provided them with a better financial model for their business, but built closer connections with their trade customers. And that led to the expansion of their product range into natural bars and snacks. You may argue that big food companies actually know a lot more about their consumers because of their ability to pay and access industry reports and research. And that is very true. But I call this being within data reach of consumers, not arm's reach. The difference is that these businesses are information and data rich. They invest significant money for regular reports and research on when, where, what, and how much consumers are buying. However, they often lack the crucial piece of the puzzle, and that is the why behind all these things happening. And that's something a food entrepreneur who is talking to their consumer daily, they can uncover that quickly and at minimal cost. 
For example, when Rich, Dan and Oscar from Young Henry's opened a tasting bar at their craft brewery in Newtown, they quickly learned that this bar wasn't just about selling really good beer. It became a gathering place for the local Newtown community of creative people from a diverse range of industries like sport, fashion, art and music. And so in response to public appeal, they expanded their Young Henry's product range to include spirits and ciders and welcomed non-beer drinkers into the Young Henry's fold. This ended up building them a community based on a shared love of creative expression rather than just craft beer lovers. And finally, the third reason why food entrepreneurs are achieving unprecedented growth is their ability to undertake product discovery. One of the things I find most inspiring about small to medium food entrepreneurs is their ability to play on the edge of true product discovery. By this, I mean they create innovative food and beverages that use new ingredients, products, flavors, and formats that attract only the earliest of innovators and adopters. And they're often misunderstood and shunned by the majority of consumers. For example, think back to when you first saw products using kale, matcha, cauliflower, kombucha, or almond milk. Most people thought that these were just weird, hippie, health nut only fads. Instead, they developed into mainstream food products readily available in every retail store. So food entrepreneurs are the ultimate risk takers. They often find, create, and work in product niches that remain small before gaining mainstream consumer appeal and acceptance. We heard about this with ag tech startup Sproutstack. Do you remember how co-founder Francisco Caffarina created climate-controlled indoor farms to grow microcrops in used shipping containers using integrated computer technology? This approach to crop growing has the ability to transform the agricultural industry by overcoming the challenges of weather disruption and food miles that face traditional crop growers. And they're pushing to scale this up into mainstream use. We heard another good example of product discovery from Ryan Hartshorn of Hartshorn Distillery. He was the world's first to make vodka from Sheep's Way, a byproduct from his family's sheep cheesery. Now, Ryan developed a new method of production, challenged the category norms around undistilled flavor profiles, and created a new category of Sheep's Way vodka. His bewildering foray into the unknown paid off and resulted in recognition as the best variety of vodka in Australia and the world's best vodka at the World Vodka Awards. As consumers' needs continue to fragment to the point where we're all after individual solutions to meet our specific dietary preferences, food entrepreneurs are right at the coalface of identifying and satisfying consumers' emerging needs first, and that is driving their rapid business growth. By comparison, I see the role of big food companies undertaking new product development as one of democratization rather than discovery. And what I mean by that is because of their large size and financial expectations, big food companies have to play a bigger and lower risk game when launching new products. They must be confident that they can secure the majority of the consumer market, those late and early majority adopters, to guarantee the scale and return on investment required to operate profitably. This means big food companies are best suited to keeping an eye on the smaller food entrepreneurs who have paved the way through product niches and early adopters so that they can be expansion or acquisition partners 
and helps scale up and democratize a product or ingredient into the mainstream. Hayley Blyden, the founder of the Australian Superfood Company, used this approach on her mission to increase the awareness, accessibility and affordability of native Australian superfoods. After her first launch of a superfood bar met with some consumer interest but low awareness, Haley's business model successfully pivoted to become an ingredient supplier of native Australian superfoods for chefs, restaurants and larger food and beverage manufacturing brands. These are now helping Haley build mainstream awareness and appreciation of native superfoods through a wider range of mainstream food and beverage products. In summary, because of these three capabilities, product and brand authenticity, consumer closeness, and product discovery, smaller and newer food and beverage businesses are capturing the hearts and minds of consumers while delivering a wake-up call to big food companies who may be over-reliant on generic and dated products. I look forward to seeing this trend of unprecedented growth for food entrepreneurs continue in the future because it brings higher quality, unique, and meaningful food and beverage products to all of our tables. Well, that's it for episode 35 and a wrap-up for season two of the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast. I'd like to thank all of my podcast guests for season two. I've loved diving into the food founders' stories, their successes and challenges in building their amazing food and beverage businesses. And thank you to my food and beverage experts who have generously shared their wisdom and tips for growing a food and beverage business. A big shout out to our longtime sponsor, the Monash Food Innovation Centre, who are helping food and beverage businesses in Australia thrive through product innovation. And finally, a huge thanks to you, my listeners, subscribers, and anyone who's taken the time to send me feedback and comments. I hope that you've been as inspired by each podcast episode as I have been, and that you find the time and opportunity to work in a food and beverage business that you love and feel passionate about. During the break, I'll be thinking about how to make this podcast even more engaging, inspiring, and helpful in the future. If you have any thoughts, feel free to get in touch with me via the Eat, Drink, Innovate website. Until next time, don't forget to eat, drink, and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 